Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Why I Make Art, my book based on the Sound and Vision podcast is now available. Many thanks to all those who pre-ordered the book. It's 336 pages filled with quotes by the many artists on this podcast, words of wisdom, Features on 30 artists, some of the guest book artist sketches, color images of the work, an introduction by Rishikesh Hirway of Song Exploder. It's out on Altelier Editions, and it's distributed by Artbook DAP, and it's available on their websites, as well as Amazon, Target, Barnes & Noble, and other places that you can get books. It's $25, and in my opinion, it's well worth it. You can order a copy today at altelier-editions.com or artbook.com. There's already been an incredible response, and so many of you have sent me messages and saying you've ordered the book, and that some of you have already gotten a copy of it. Thanks so much for that, and uh, if you want to support this podcast and you're really interested in these artists, then uh, pick one up. Thanks so much for the support. Sound and Vision is sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Based out of New Berlin in upstate New York, Golden is an employee-owned company that makes some of the best acrylics, oils, watercolors, and mediums that money can buy. I'm working on new work in the studio now, and from the Golden Gesso to the Golden Matte Medium to the Golden Heavy Body Acrylics, the So Flat Paints, just everything in there is happening with Golden Paint. They make the best paints, with the best pigments. And you can find out for yourself by going to goldenpaints.com or going to your local art store. Sound and Vision is also sponsored by Fulcrum Coffee Roasters. Based out of Seattle, Fulcrum makes some of the best coffee you can get. There's subscriptions that you can order online to have their coffee delivered to your door. There's a wide variety of beans and blends, and they make some of the best coffee that you can have. I've been fully caffeinated on Fulcrum for a while now in the studio and doing podcasts. Coffee's my one thing, and Fulcrum really delivers. Uh, check out their website, fulcrumcoffee.com, and you can use the code ALFREDSTUDIO at checkout to get 10% off your order. Marina Capos received an MFA from the Yale University School of Art in 1997 and a BFA from the California Institute of the Arts in 1995. She lives and works in New York City. Her solo exhibitions include UUU at Shrine in New York City, Transfigured at Foyer LA in Los Angeles, Peep Show at China Art Objects in LA, and Marina Capos at Tokyo Wonder Site Institute of Contemporary Art. Her group exhibitions include Resonant Frequencies at Jonathan Levine Projects in New Jersey, Show Me the Signs at Blum and Poe in California, and Animal Crossing at Inman Gallery in Texas. Catalogs were published for her 2007 exhibition at the Tokyo Wondersight Institute for Contemporary Art, and also for her two solo exhibitions at I-20 Gallery in New York. Marina has been reviewed in publications including Art Forum, Time Out New York, The Japan Times, and Flash Art. In the winter of 2020, she participated in the artist residency program at Lighthouse Works on Fishers Island. She also attended the Tokyo Wondersight Creator in Residence program twice, first in 2007 and then again in 2013, where she spent several months painting and living in Tokyo. 
She also has a show titled Sun Up, Sun Down at Lighthouse Works through July 16th, and a group show at Natalie Carr Gallery opening June 28th titled Painting As Is, Part 2, curated by Heidi Hahn and Tim Wilson. I spoke to Marina about growing up an identical twin, Kenny Rogers, echoing forms, migraines, control in painting, and much more. Here's our conversation. I don't know if anyone can dodge it. Do you know any old people who don't have reading? I'm not saying we're old. Clearly. (laughs) But it's a case study. Yeah, you are. (laughs) Do you know any old people who don't wear reading glasses? Uh Who could just whip out a newspaper and read it a la carte? I don't think so. I mean, I do think some people are better at reading stuff, like, as they age than I am, maybe. But, like, yeah, I think in general it's almost unavoidable. Are you a big reader? Is anyone a big reader? I am not a big reader, really, like, if you're talking about, like, books and print. I mean, I read a lot, like, online and stuff, but I am not, like... Um, my attention span has been reduced like by social media and stuff and so I have a hard time like sitting down and like reading something these days so I, I'm pretty sure that's most of us right yeah like, it's so hard to just sit there and focus I find that when I read analog I just fall asleep <laughs> Yeah, I heard you say that on another podcast, and I kind of chuckled because I am also like that, too. Like, I get really sleepy once I start reading. Um, But I do, I mean, really, in the end, I am reading a lot. Like, I'm looking at magazine articles and the New York Times and, you know, like, online. I, like, read a lot of stuff. It's just more, like, articles and, like, short form. I mean, my sister, I have a identical twin sister and she's an avid reader like she's reading every night she sets she's always telling me like set time (laughs) yeah like she's like set you know time at the end of the day to like do it and you know turn your phone off and and just do it and then once I think you get into the routine of it then you know it it for her it's like kind of this time of enjoyment like before she goes to bed you know yeah. So. Well, can I ask a personal question? Yeah. On her behalf? Does she have kids? No, she does not. Much easier to do that <laughs> night reading, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I used to do more, I think. Yeah. <laughs> There's something that happens like after a kid that if you are adjacent to something conducive to sleeping, you're just it's lights out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh well. You know, I bet. You I bet. <laughs> I'm proud of my late night coffee drinking. And it does nothing for me. <laughs> really? You're drinking coffee late at night? That's kind of intense. I fall asleep <laughs> drinking coffee. Wow. That's not a joke. Mm. It's sad, but it's true. I think my just tolerance for it is, you know, it doesn't work anymore. Mm. I'm extremely, I'm really, I have a sensitive little body and I am very sensitive to caffeine. And I used to love drinking coffee, but I had to cut it out. Um, Completely? Yes, actually, because it triggers my migraines and I have uh, the type of migraines that gives you that kind of aura, you know, like you see kind of like spots and like the light in your eyes sort of gets a little bit wonky Um, and caffeine is definitely a trigger for me. So years ago, I actually quit drinking coffee and then I just started kind of strictly drinking tea and then now even the caffeine in the tea is starting to 
give me oh, the auras. Man. And so I'm sad about that because I feel like I'm slowly oh. really having to wean myself away from coffee completely. Can you do decaf? I do do decaf, but um, I've noticed that that is, feels like it's starting to do the same. Like it feels like I'm just getting, my tolerance is getting like lower and lower. I'm worried it's like I'm going to cut out the tea and the decaf and the coffee and then it's going to move to like chocolate or something, which would oh, yeah, be kind of devastating for me. <laughs> so um, oh, no. that's my big worry. <laughs> I, you know, I I'm a migraine person too with the aura thing. Oh, really? And um, yeah, and I always worried about that because they would give you like four or five triggers, you know, like wine, chocolate, whatever. Yeah. You know, caffeine was one of them. And I was like, no, I can't. No, not me, you know. So what's your trigger? <laughs> Do you know? I, I figured it out. It's peanuts. Really? Wow. I'm not kidding. And I know that because when I used to live next to a sea town, in Brooklyn and Planters Peanuts went on sale two for one those giant jars in the studio one week I was just slamming peanuts constantly and I kept getting migraines that week like usually I would get a migraine like once a month or you know like spaced out I was getting rapid fire migraine after migraine I was like, what the hell is going on maybe day three or four of this I walk over to the kitchen and I go to and I was like oh maybe it's the peanuts. Huh. That's so an I interesting one. And I haven't, I haven't gotten them. You haven't gotten them at all, like since no peanuts. I got one fairly recently, but I think I had some pad thai and maybe it, or I was eating peanut brittle, which might have done it. Hmm. Interesting. But it was worth it. But yeah, it, it, it killed it off. So it was definitely the peanuts because that case study of the, uh, of downing like <laughs> massive amounts of peanuts. Kind of brought it to to the fore. It's crazy though, isn't it, that you just go blind for a little while in one eye? Like you just It kind of like, travels around my eyes. It's like both of my eyes and it sort of starts I mean it's very like it kind of, I feel like it's a little bit like drug like where, you know, like I see like a little spot that starts out pretty small and then it kind of yeah. like gets bigger and bigger and sort of like it kind of moves across both of my eyes and then it disappears. And often oh, I don't get the um, the headache after. I just get right. the aura part and then actually don't get the migraine. Yeah. Yeah, the migraine, when you get it, though, that's a humdinger. Yeah. I mean, it is bad. Yeah. And they linger for a while. Yeah, migraines are the worst. <laughs> they are, and I think more than the headache... I get really freaked out by the blindness, like that temporary, like, but not, even if you could see things, but it's kind of oddly fuzzy in a way, it's hard to describe, but you'll have the aura in one area, area, and then it kind of like, you know, your whole field of vision isn't crisp or something, and I freak out because as a visual person, I don't want to lose it. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, it sort of has this moment, it's almost like light blindness or something, yeah. you know, and so then that freaks me, and I'm like, what if this stayed, <laughs> you know, like I never, it went back to normal, you know, but I try yeah. not to be anxious about it, like when, I mean, this has been happening to me since high school, so, and I never told anyone about it, like early on, like I just sort of like accepted it, and like was kind of quiet, it was only like years later that I like told someone that this weird thing was happening and then they were like oh yeah like those are migraines you know 
Yeah, but, same. Um, and uh, it was weird because back then there wasn't the information about it. It's not like you look it up on the internet, like, why am I seeing white spots or whatever? And I remember, to me, one of the, the first times I had it real bad, I was in a high school soccer game, and it the aura came, which was like, what the hell? I didn't know what was going on. And I remember someone crossed the ball over to me for a header, and usually I was pretty good at those. And <laughs> the aura got in the way, and it hit me right in the face. It was so embarrassing. My coach is like, what the hell? You just let it hit <laughs> like, you in the what's face. What's going on I like, with ah, you? Yeah, I, I, I messed up. You know, I couldn't explain it. I was too young. I didn't know what to say. Yeah. But at least we know now what it is, you know. Yeah, I know what it is. And I also think that it, it does, like, affect the way I look at things and, like, the way I perceive the world just, like, in general, you know? Like, I feel like there's a little bit of that even in, like, my paintings, you know, of that mm-hmm. kind of weird out-of-focusness, you know, or, yeah. like, vibrating element, you know, which is something that I definitely actually see, you know? Yeah, we tied it together. It's like the echoing of some of the forms. Yes. You know? I feel yeah. like that. Yeah. Told in a little trippy. Yeah, yeah. We bridged a gap there from high school migraines to your current work. Yes, everything. (laughs) I'm a strong believer that everything that's happening to you informs your work at some point. Oh, I believe it. I mean, we are, you know, it's coming out of our brains, so it's got to in some way. Yeah, totally, totally. So you have, is your, did you say your sister's a twin? Yeah, I have an identical twin sister, which also heavily informs everything about me. I'm sure. You know, my older brothers who never made it were twin. My my mom had identical twins, but they didn't make it. Oh. In between me and my older brother. And my dad is a twin. Oh, wow. And I think there's another twin up there. So I was, no offense, mortified that I was going to have twins. <laughs> <laughs> didn't think I was ready for that kind of commitment. <laughs> my mom was always a bit jealous of us like I feel like we really uh turned into each other like we were as children like we really only cared about each other you know and I think that my mom felt a little bit left out you know so maybe in some ways it's a little easier to have twins because they really you know it is like a really special bond you know and they really connect with each other and kind of you know we're paying attention to each other you know in a pretty pretty deep way I imagine my mom says that we had like a secret language and as when we were babies and we like spoke to each other and no one else could really understand what we were saying well that's pretty cool well you are clones in a way yes yeah twins are basically we have the same DNA so if she committed a crime I could get busted for it or you know kind of a crazy idea Right. Wow. That's crazy. It's really interesting, too, that... I mean, is that... Not to like try it to tie everything together, but you know how you have a lot of double... Yes, totally. I used to... Like when I was younger, I would make... I painted portraits, and I would always do a double, like a mirror image, you know? And sometimes I'd hang yeah. them, like, across from each other. And that always was, like, kind of a direct reference to, like, sort of being two in a way you know or even like I even feel like with these current paintings this kind of like extension of the self you know like I'm not in entirely in one body like there is like another person like who's 
me that's like existing out there in the world, you know? Yeah. So I do think about that stuff. Cause when you grow up as a twin, you're also not so much an individual, you know, necessarily as you're growing up, like we were, you're called like the girls or, you know, like it was a lot about Package like, deal. yeah, totally. And so I think that that's like, super interesting and that for me like in starting around junior high school like all of a sudden I wanted to have my own identity you know and I sort of struggled a little bit with that my sister not so much but I definitely struggled with kind of wanting to like assert myself or kind of be like hey like (laughs) you know like I'm not just one of the girls, like, you know, like, it's not just like, oh, I'll take either one of them, it doesn't matter, you know, so I eventually, I actually uh, transferred high schools, and, oh, wow, um, you really wanted to separate, yeah, I think that a friend of mine, actually, my best friend, told me about an arts high school, the LA County High School for the Arts, and which was just starting, like it was only a couple years old at the time. And she wanted, she was applying to go for theater and she told me about it. And she was like, you should apply and go for visual arts, you know? And so, um, so that was really interesting to me. And I had sort of had a lot of friends in junior high and then my freshman year in high school when I was I was just out of public high school I felt like I kind of lost my footing and that freshman year was a little hard like I didn't quite know where I fit in you know and so transferring to this art high school seemed like this really interesting idea you know and so um so I did that yeah and my sister stayed at the at the regular high school, and then I, I left and went to the arts high school. Now, you're both still creative, though, right? Yeah, she she is also extremely creative, but um, I think at the time, again, like, because we were sort of trying to figure out our roles when we were younger, I think she thought, like, the art thing was my thing, you know? And so, right. like, she sort of stayed away from that, Um and then it was only later where she kind of, I mean, she, she went to college and she actually double majored in art history and women's studies, but, and she went to UC Santa Cruz, which was kind of like a, is still, I guess, like a, a hippie town. And so there was this little bead store there and she, every time I would go visit her there, she uh, had gone to the bead store and was making um, these little necklaces, you know, and they were super interesting, like the way she was like structuring them. And I was always like excited to see like what new necklace she was making. And then that ended up being kind of her calling. Like she's a jewelry designer and has like a pretty um, big business and, you know, has been doing that for, for years, like working with a, a lot of German vintage glass beads. Nice. Now, since you both ended up pretty creative, was that something in the household? No, not at all. (laughs) My parents, I mean... lawyers. (laughs) Well, my parents are both from other countries, so my sister and I are like first-generation Americans, and uh, my father was from Greece, and my mom's from Chile, and they met in an English class um, at Pasadena Community College in the 60s. Um, and so I think, and they just weren't 
they weren't like artistic, creative people, you know, they were sort of just like hardworking, like people coming to the United States. And um, so it's kind of interesting. Like, I feel like they have two kids that were like super different, you know, my mom was a preschool teacher and my dad was um, working at a medical company and, you know, like pretty traditional, like conservative values, you know, although my, my mother's, mother my grandmother um was a painter so um there you go she there's a through line yeah and we would go when we were especially when we were younger we would go to south america and stay at my grandmother's house and she had uh, she painted pretty traditional oil still lives that she had um hanging in the house and she had a couple i think like a couple exhibitions in her town like you know like kind of local Exhibition, so I definitely saw her as like a maker, you know. Um, but she also she didn't speak English, so I don't have like a strong, and I don't speak Spanish, and so um, I never had like a strong relationship with her, you know. So I sort of took like visual cues on like what she was doing, but I didn't actually have like a connected relationship to her. So I think my because so guys- my parents were from two different countries and their common language was English that, and they wanted their children to be American. Like it was a generation that really wanted like their kids, like there was pride in like being American, you know? And so we were never spoken to in in Greek or Spanish. Like we were kept very separate from that. But have you, have you still traveled? Have you gone to Greece? Oh, yeah. I mean, we traveled when we were younger. We traveled more to Chile, to my mother's family. And then it wasn't until I was 16 till I think it was the first time that I went to Greece. Um, but I've been to Greece now, like, many times. And I think that really instilled that kind of traveling as a child. I like, kind of instilled the the travel bug in me at a pretty young age, you know, and I kind of realized like that the world was a much bigger place than, you know, Los Angeles, you know, where I grew up. So, um, so yeah, so traveling is kind of outside of painting is probably like my next like passion. Yeah. It's funny. I wonder what the Greek Chilean community is. It doesn't seem like that would be a large population. The combo of like or, of the combination, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, so yeah. I think it it, it always seems Chilean very exotic. Parents. Like when people are like, you know, who, where are your parents from? Like people are like, oh wow, you know, like it's a very yeah. unusual combination for sure. And my parents yeah. were extremely different. Like like Chile is like a ninety five percent Catholic country and. Um, and then my dad was a, a bit of a like kind of party Greek guy, like drinking and gambling and, you know, and so the two of them like were almost like polar opposites, you know, like my mother was like a very devoutly religious woman and my dad was kind of exactly opposite of that. So. Where did you guys land in that? Were you going to church a lot or were you? I, yes. Partying? I mean, I, I. <laughs> had to go to church every Sunday my entire upbringing like till I was Catholic yes um and I Uh, went to Sunday school I did CCD uh, but I was pretty resistant to it like it's not something that it didn't take on me or my sister and I think that's probably because my dad was 
very vocal about not believing in God at all, you know? And so I think as like a young person and being impressionable, I imagine that it, it um, sort of had an effect on me. Like I realized that pretty early on that there were choices, you know, and going to church when I was young felt um, was just like an obligation, you know, and something I had to do. So I didn't really like connect to it. And now I, I um, I'm not religious at all. So. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, uh, most of the, I grew up around a lot of Catholic kids, and you know, it was work for them. They were like, "Oh, I gotta go," you know. So if you have one parent who's like, "Hey, that's you know, kind of like get out of jail free card. You don't have to go do," or that's not what I believe in. You, most kids are probably gonna lean towards the, you know, the non rigorous religious side of things. Yeah. I would think. Yeah, and I think I mean my parents. I think were heavily about obligation you know they were real like traditionalists and there was a lot kind of everything about my growing up experience was about like this we do this because we have to and like you know like and there was kind of this routine and it it felt like there was a it was a little I have to say it was a little joyless in some ways you know of like there was just kind of a lot of you know just like this is life and this is what we do and and that felt so rigid to me and like structured and it was something that I really like rebelled against so yeah well let's let's talk about light landscape and music okay things that I think growing (laughs) up in Los Angeles yes you know it's a different light you know a different color sensibility and um and then the landscape that you're around did that have a lot of influence on you and then I'm sure if you're trying to separate or find your voice as a not only as like a young kid, but also as a twin, music sometimes is a way to sort of define yourself, right? Yeah, I mean, I have music is is interesting. I've been thinking a lot about it in the last few days when we we're talking about doing this interview because I I have to say that I've always felt a bit insecure about my music knowledge, and I and that directly stems to the what I'm talking about, like with my parents, like having parents that were not American and and like just don't get like pop culture influences at all you know so I was kind of thinking like we never my parents never played music in the house I mean I remember actually that they had a record player and they had like kind of corny country music albums like Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton and I remember I wrote I loved Kenny Rogers when I was like a young kid and wrote him a fan letter and he like sent us my sister and I both did and he sent us like a signed copy of his picture and we were like swooning we were so excited and (laughs) Um, nice. And I remember my mom really loved watching the Lawrence Welk show, you know, which is wow. like so, <laughs> so conservative and ridiculous. And I remember being a kid at night and watching that. So I feel like I didn't have any like cool music references as a kid. Um, and so I remember kind of getting to junior high and, you know, like, like I remember people being really into Duran Duran and Depeche Mode and I remember like being like I don't know what that is like you know like being like upset (laughs) like like totally like uncool about music you know and so and I feel like I've sort of carried that along with me that kind of like stigma of like oh that's like 
like, I don't know that much about music or something, you know, which maybe in part is true and it also isn't, you know, but, um, I mean, I feel like for me, actually, honestly, like when I got to college and like, kind of like the nineties, like grunge music and stuff was something that I really like tapped into. Like that was a moment more than like eighties stuff. Like the nineties actually was like, I don't know, maybe that angst and that kind of, uh, feeling was like more something that I could get in touch with, you know, and so that was kind of like more the music that I liked, like when I was kind of younger, you know, or, or kind of, I guess, starting out as an adult, you know. Um, yeah, it like resonated. It resonated. Yeah. I think it's what, you know, for music to really, for young people to identify, it just has to hit at that right time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Like I love, I remember when Kurt Cobain died, I was like absolutely devastated, you know, like I remember that, I remember that day like so well, you know, and I I just like loved all of those bands. Like Mudhoney was like my favorite, one of my favorite bands. Um, So yeah, so that was kind of, but then now, like, I feel like I don't, I don't listen to music a ton, like when I'm working, like when I'm painting or only because I feel like uh, I'm pretty sensitive to music. Like it feels uh, kind of overwhelming to me. Like it sort of takes a lot of energy for me, you know, when I listen to it. So like, I feel like I have to really be like in the mood or or I love listening to music when I'm like at the gym, you know, like, cause that feels like I'm more in tune with my body and I can like sort of feel that emotion, you know, but like often when I'm painting, I feel like I need it to be quiet, you know, and I like sort of need to be with my thoughts, you know? Yeah. I have a theory on that. I think that uh, people who don't grow up with music on all the time, like it's not just always around, then it inserts itself into people's life more or their mind to where when the music does come on you're like oh like so if you're in your studio and you hear like if a really sad song comes on or a really aggressive loud song comes on it really affects you whereas I think if you grow up with the music's always there it's almost like white noise it just becomes you can adapt to it and it doesn't hit you as hard or something right right yeah yeah I mean it's interesting because I think about when I was younger like my mom did take us a lot to museums and like, like she, maybe because her mother was interested in art, like she felt like it was important to introduce us to art and take us to exhibitions. And I, and that always really fueled me, like even to this day, obviously, like, like, like that kind of visual, you could call it visual music or whatever's happening when yeah. you're like looking, you know, at something is something that has always energized me and like excited me, you know, and then, but then music is kind of in some ways is the opposite where it sort of takes energy from me. Right. No, I think that's a real advantage though of being that young and being able to see that stuff, you know? Yeah. And what museums do, I mean, was there, do you remember specific things that really? I mean, I, I do. There was one moment when my mom took me to LACMA and uh, I remember standing in front of um, a Mark Rothko painting, and it was a red painting. Um, maybe I was in junior high school or something. And I remember sort of having like 
a religious experience in front of this painting, like like the color, the red, you know, and it was so big, like it was so much bigger than me. And I remember kind of standing in front of this kind of vibrating red canvas, you know, and feeling like, like truly connected, you know, like I really remember that, like, I think that that probably was a moment, even though maybe I didn't realize it consciously of like, um, me sort of making a decision to like want to be an artist or like be connected to art in some way, you know? And then I also, I do remember also like in eighth grade and my last year in junior high, there was kind of, I don't know if all eighth graders do this across the country, but like you can go on like a field trip to Washington DC. And I remember in my eighth grade class went to Washington DC and we went to like the modern art museum there. And I remember seeing some, I don't even exactly remember what it was now, but maybe like some Ellsworth Kelly's or like some, you know, kind of flat, like modern colored, you know, minimalist paintings and, and also having that same sort of, you know, like reverence, like, you know, like, oh my God, like, you know, like almost like a religion, you know, like this is it, like, this is it for me. And I remember thinking, or I remember hearing, some kids like in my class that you know were kind of saying the cliche stuff that sometimes people say about modern art like I could paint that or you know it's just like a green square or whatever and I remember feeling like enraged you know like by the comments like you know feeling like you don't understand you know like you don't understand like how deep this is you know so I definitely did have like moments like of going to museums and like really feeling like a strong connection I wonder if you took all the sort of working artists, like people have devoted their life to making art and went back in time and saw them as a kid in a museum, if they were the ones that never questioned it and always were like, oh, wow, check that out. And they were never like, this is a red square. This is BS. Yeah, I mean, maybe. I wonder if it's within you. Because I remember having that same experience. And specifically in front of large abstract work. And I think what happens is when you're young, you don't think about someone making that really. Or at least when I was really young, I just thought like, it seemed almost alien. Like, what is that? And how does it exist? And what does it mean? And there's like a magic to it that's way bigger than you know, Mark Rothko or, right. or Jules Lidsky. Yeah, certainly. Just, There's like an alchemy that happens, yeah. you know, you know, and I could see it. Like I could see that it was like turning into gold, <laughs> you know. Right, right. I think that's what happens with music too. I think there's an alchemy where the the sonics and the song becomes bigger than just, you know, Bob Dylan or the Rolling Stones yeah, or for whoever sure. it is for to sure. where it's just like, this is everything. It's like I mean, it's probably that's probably true of any creative pursuit, you know. Like yeah, when you kind theater, of yeah, a good theater will do it. It takes you out of or film. Yeah, you forget that you're here on Earth for two hours in a movie. Totally, theater, if it's good. Totally, and you come out and you're like, "What just happened to me?" Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, I think that in the end, maybe with those kids that are like you know junior high school kids sitting in museums, it's about like curiosity too. You know, like Definitely. I think like just being curious about what is this instead of like shutting it down and being like, eh, like seeing it, like whatever I could do it, or you know, yeah. of like just kind of keeping your mind open. You know, totally. The suspension of disbelief. I feel like a lot of that's probably wired by parents too, sadly. Because there's probably some parents who are just like, nope, 
Like, this is how it is. I, although and, I have to say that my parents were like that, you know, I mean, my parents, but then I think there's two kinds of kids, maybe like the kids that, you know, buy into the, you know, dogma of their parents, you know, like whatever their parents right. say. And then there's the other kids that are like, like for whatever reason, like there's like, you know, from an early age where you kind of do the opposite, you know, where I sort of always questioned, like there was never anything that my, I mean, my mom's going to kill me if she listens to this, but like there was never anything um, that I believed, you know, like inherently believed that my parents said, you know, like, which I think was lucky for me in the end. Like I was like, hmm, is that true? You know? And so like, I feel like it sort of, to you know it depends on like what type of environment you grew up you know and whether you're willing to believe or not you know right i think there's a value in that because it means you're trying to find out for yourself what is or what isn't your parents are always just kind of trying to help you but in essence you always have to find it out you know right like whenever my kid like you know calls bs on me or says i don't think that's right like I'm kind of like hurt in a way because I'm like, well, I've been through this. I I know. But then again, maybe you're right. You know what I mean? Maybe you need to find that out. Yeah. So there's, there's something. I mean, partly for me, it probably is because my parents were immigrants too. So they didn't really connect to what was going on in the world. And so, like, or in the, in the United States necessarily, you know, so there were a lot of things that they were like, you know, had these like traditional values that were kind of old school values, you know? So that's probably right. why I was like, Hmm, it's not really like that here. You know? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. You, you are the culture. They came into the culture, but you're right. living in it. Like you were born from it. So you will always feel, you would always have felt like, well, I know my environment. You guys aren't, you weren't born and raised in this environment, right? you know? Right. So in a way, it probably made you independent in a way too, to where you, it's like, well, I've got to navigate this stuff. You guys didn't have to, you know? Yeah. It's different. I yeah, think. definitely. Ironically, it's different whether your parents are from another country or not. Every parent is from a different generation. And that's probably just as foreign <laughs> to a kid than being from another place. You know what I mean? Cause like kids growing up today with phones and like the internet and stuff, it's, it's night and day from, you know the way yeah I mean I I definitely feel like we're lucky like because we I feel like I'm assuming you're a Gen Xer too like I feel like Gen Xers like got this kind of lucky um moment in time where we like grew up without all this stuff but then we were also like young enough to like embrace it you know like like digital technology and everything that you know like computers email phones you know whatever happened like after and so I feel like we're in this like really unique position of like sort of getting to grow up and it's like and and being able to walk out the door you know like with your friends and sort of like disappearing like you know like there was no one that was like watching us or you know we were just kind of wild like out there you know and I think about that and that like doesn't exist anymore you know but then now we're still young enough to really sort of be in this moment as well you know so I feel like we kind of lucked out yeah in a way the uh, not to be devil's advocate we know what it was like to be off the grid and now the grid is everywhere you can't get off the grid so in a way we you know there is a little bit of like oh we know what we lost yeah (laughs) to just go for a drive 
to another state or something and you weren't, you know, you hear from them when they get the back and that was it. Like you weren't expected to be always on. Like we're, we always have to be on. And if we're not, we're being really rude by not responding to people. Right. You know? Right. Whereas it used to be like, I remember when I was in a band, we'd go on tour. It's like two weeks. I may call someone once or twice, but that's it. You're not going to hear from me till I get back. And you could just like dive into whatever you're doing. Yeah, totally. I don't know how that is creatively these days. I think we're just evolving into being able to still be creative, but with like lots of stimulus at all times. Well, yeah. I mean, I remember as a kid kind of being bored a lot, you know, like like during the summers, like just kind of not having a lot to do like I remember my sister and I used to there was like an alley in the back of our house and we used to just go and like for hours just like collect like trash like in the alley like you know like tiny little pieces like of red plastic or like a blue little wheel or whatever and then we would like come home and we'd like lay it all out and we'd like trade it and you know like there was like nothing going on you know and so we were like or we'd sometimes we would go out and we'd collect bees like we'd just like go and find bees like you know like dead bees in the gutters and we'd like had a drawer in our bedroom just full of like dead bees (laughs) That sounds that sounds familiar. (laughs) But it was so lovely. Like I feel like now I think about it, and I feel like my both my sister and I really cultivated our creativity in those years. You know, like being young and kind of bored. We also had like a extremely elaborate game that we played where we pretended um, that we were squirrels and we were very connected to the animals like in our neighborhood and we had like squirrel names and another friend of ours played the game and then we also had like other friends that weren't allowed to be squirrels they were allowed to be other animals like raccoons or like our enemies were rabbits and you know it was like a pretty elaborate game that we played that was pretty much like a hierarchical structure that we invented where we put ourselves like at the top, you know, of, and yeah. it was kind of like an interesting thing, like as, as kids that we did, you know, and I like think about that and I feel like there's not like a lot of room anymore for, for kind of just being bored, you know, and like not looking at a screen or like trying to f- have to figure out like, other things to invent or do. I think it's gone, you know, unless you actually, it's regimented. You know what I mean? Like you have to say, okay. And really what eight year old is going to say, okay, I'm not going to be online at all today or for six hours or whatever, you know, Yeah. it's hard. It's like, there's too much stuff to do, you know? And even me, I mean, I, I don't even, I don't even really necessarily have much of an addictive personality, but I do notice that I cannot stop looking at my phone, you know, (laughs) like I just really like, you know, there's down moment and like my just hand goes up and I'm looking at the phone, you know, like it's definitely like, I definitely have, like I'm addicted to it, you know? Yeah. You and everyone else. Yeah. Pretty much. (laughs) I mean, it's hard and you get into a habit of doing it, you know, but you know, it's well, Let's go back to yeah. You know, we high we school. veered off. You were talking about you wanted to talk about L.A. landscape, but yeah, I guess the landscape and and then maybe migrating into you know being artistic. Like when did that start? You know, 
I mean, I think my mom, like I said, always put us, she sort of always was interested in us having like access to art. And, and so we took a lot of like drawing classes and like art classes when we were kids. Um, so I think, yeah. So I think that I always sort of had an interest in painting and drawing and, um, and it was something that made me feel good. I think like it gave me, I think it gave me a certain sense of like self worth as a kid, because when I would, when I was in an art class or something, people would walk by and be like, oh, that's interesting, or, you know, like, that's good. So, like, it was something that I sort of realized at an early age, like, oh, I'm kind of good at this, you know? And so I think I I was always interested in art making, and same with my sister, I think. I mean, I don't know what what she was thinking when she was taking the art classes, but for me, it, it felt like it had value and and then it when I went when I switched high schools and went to the LA County High School for the Arts um that was kind of a a huge moment of change you know that that high school is on the campus of Cal State LA so it's on like a college campus and at the time I mean that the school has grown now but but back then it was just one hallway like in the college campus you know where all our classes were and so there were no bells. Like I went from from being in in my freshman year in high school to like kind of a traditional high school with bells and rules to like sort of chaos. Like you know, my sophomore year, I like entered this like arts high school. All of a sudden, I was just let loose on a college campus. Um, so that was pretty fun and like remarkable, you know. And then the way the day was structured was. Um, we had academic classes from uh, 8 a.m. till noon, and then from 1 to 4, we had an art class. So I had five different art classes a week. Um, so it was a pretty, and that was pretty intense because we had, like, assignments for, you know, each of those classes, and, you know, so it was a lot of work, you know, and, and it was all different kinds of art, like sculpture, illustration, jewelry design, figure drawing, you know, like just like a ton of different um, ways of like making stuff, you know, and, um, and at, at that time, I always ha- had a good sense of, of design and kind of like making kind of flat graphic types of drawings or, you know, or, or painting, I guess. And so I thought, I think in high school, I didn't actually realize that you could be, that you could have a career as an artist. And so I sort of thought that I was going to be like a graphic designer. So I took a lot of like, at the time they called it 2D design classes, you know, and, um, and I was really good at like using frisket and like cutting shapes on illustration board and like painting with like gouache and, you know, like, and, uh, and that was kind of like, for the you know the first couple years in high school was the thing that I thought that I wanted to do and it wasn't till my senior year in high school that I took like an actual like painting class you know and that was kind of like a mind-blowing experience for me where I like took my first painting class and was like oh my god like this is what I want to do you know like I want to be a painter 
Yeah, I think that there was, I mean, there's something so, I mean, it's funny because there's something so lush and kind of amazing about paint, you know, and and it's funny because I don't, I actually don't use paint that way, you know, like I'm not like a expressionistic, you know, sort of lush painter, you know, like I'm pretty like minimizing still and, you know, like, and using paint in very thin, controlled ways, you know. But I do think that originally, like, that that idea of, like, expression and freedom that was in painting was the thing that kind of, like, stuck, you know, like, that got me, you know. And then when I was in college, it, I didn't... Um, I didn't quite realize that I could n- connect the two things, like, the, the my kind of graphic design ability and the painting you know like I sort of when I got into college I was painting in a more kind of painterly expressionist way and it took me maybe a couple years to actually realize like no actually like I can use these sort of this kind of flatness and like sort of thing that I am sort of prone to in the way that I make images you know and I can combine it with painting you know like that took me a little while to figure out did you see certain people doing that or have professors who were doing that that let you know that it was a possibility? I don't think so, actually. I mean, one of the first people that I sort of recognized as doing that, like I remember seeing this kind of kind of big deal show. I forget what year it was, like in maybe the mid-90s. It was called Helter Skelter, and it was a show that was at, I think it was at MoCA, um, and it was like, you know, pretty big name, like LA artists, um, like Charles Ray and Larry Pittman and a lot of pretty big people in that show. But that was pretty, like I saw Larry Pittman's uh, paintings for the first time ever. And I remember like not being a hundred percent sure that I liked them, you know, like I, like I wasn't sure about it, you know, but it's a lot um, at first, right? Yeah. And there's always the, the, you get blown away by the, like, wow, how did he do that? But then it's like, I remember that because one of the first shows I saw in New York was a two-person, Carol Dunham and Larry Pittman. And I was like, with the Larry Pittman paintings, I was like, wow, how does he do that? Is that painting or decal? Like, I couldn't understand it. Yeah, like, and also I feel like those early paintings too were a bit creepy, you know? And And so, like, there was a a bit, like, there were you know, tombstones and coffins and this kind of old Victorian imagery and stuff, you know? And so I think that also sort of, I don't know, there was like a feeling in them there. I wasn't like quite sure. Like I was like, you know, I I mean, now it's funny to think about because I'm a big fan of Larry Pippen, you know, and I like understand that he's like a genius with what he does, you know? But it's funny, like at the time when I was like introduced to it, I was like, I don't know, you know? And so, um, but it also was a moment of like seeing artwork that was extremely graphic and flatly painted, you know? So, um, so yeah, I think that, that, that did have an influence. Although you, you, I'm sure at the museums you were seeing things like Lichtenstein or. Yeah. I mean, although I have to say like someone like Ellsworth Kelly or somebody, like, I think that I like separated, like kind of this flat graphicness with like abstraction, you know, and yeah. maybe I wasn't, I can't remember when the first time I saw like, I really looked at a Lichtenstein was necessary. I mean, I, I do think pop 
like even Warhol or Lichtenstein or whatever was heavily influential on me at the time, you know, but I also, there, there was like separations in my mind for whatever reason, like about flatness and like abstraction, you know, which I, so yeah. So um, it took me a while to like sort of combine that kind of stuff in my own head about painting, you know? I mean, I feel like, you know, when we grow up, like even when I got to Yale for grad school, like I feel like so many people had ideas about like what painting was, you know, and it's all this stuff that like, you know, we just kind of collect, I guess, like these ideas of like what real painting is, you know, and you kind of get stuck, you know, and like thinking like, oh, it has to be this way or I have to do this, you know, so it's a lot about that, like kind of shedding those kind of ideas, you know, of like, oh no. Thinking of that. I mean, I still think it's happening. I still think people think that, you know, different ways. Like, I think it's actually difficult to not think that, you know. So I feel like, um, yeah, like I kind of feel like it's still happening, don't you think? You know, like a hierarchy. Well, well, there's maybe a little bit of a hierarchy, but back then it was kind of like... Back then it was different, yes. There was like some things were just not valid or something. Yeah. You well, know, like I have to say a kind of work out of turn. It was like, well, you can't do that. Yeah. Now you could do it, but people just be like, well, that's kind of not in or something. Like, You're supposed to be the figure now or whatever. Right. <laughs> I mean, when I, what a huge wake up call for me in that respect was, you know, I went to Cal arts for undergrad, which was a heavy, conceptual like theory school you know that didn't actually even talk that much about painting you know like it was all about ideas you know and whatever the conceptual value of whatever you were making was you know and then I went to Yale which at the time when I was there I mean I think I was a couple years before you were there um which was a pretty still pretty conservative like formal painting school and I feel like I was right there on the cusp of like change you know and when I got to Yale I feel like there was so much I got so much like I'm not even going to name the teacher that said this but like the first um studio visit that I had which was about like two weeks into being at Yale I had a professor come into my studio and the first thing out of her mouth was they don't teach painting in California they teach frosting and like and that's pretty good and yeah I mean (laughs) the quote is so good I will never forget it (laughs) but at the time like I was so stunned yes like and I I didn't even I actually hadn't spent a lot of time on the west coast yet and so like I didn't even know, like, what she was talking about practically, you know. And then she <laughs> looked so around good. my studio, which I I didn't have any canvases or anything there, in there. Like, I had just started, like, painting on the walls and stuff, you know, like, kind of making an installation, like, just in the studio. And she looked around. She was, like, in my studio for, like, five minutes and was, like... It looks like a three-ring circus in here, and she's like, I never want to meet you with you again while you're here. And we never met again for two years. Really? Yeah. (laughs) Can we talk afterwards about who that was? That's a bad teacher. It was pretty shocking. I mean, at the time, like, it was so shocking that it was funny, you know? Like, I couldn't, like, take it seriously. Now I've had a thought about it, obviously, over the years, and I'm like, oh, like sort of talking about what we were talking before about these rigid ideas of painting, you know, like I feel like people got stuck, you know, and 
I wonder, like, now, I'm like, what was going on with her, like, where she was so hostile about that and couldn't really, um, you know, like, couldn't really register, like, what was going on with for me, or I don't know, like, it, just couldn't accept it as painting, you know? Like, couldn't even have a conversation about it, you know? Well, no, but that's a bad teacher because you're not going to have, <laughs> I mean... Do you really want a class, a whole class of the same kind of painters that are like you? I mean, it's so weird, you know? I don't know. I don't get it. Yeah. But it was a pretty good line. I'll give them that. Yeah. I feel like I should name a show that. I feel like that'd be a great title for a show. Yeah. (laughs) Who knew that, like, you know, Yale and Cal Arts was like the biggie Tupac of of art schools? Yeah. Well, I remember Catherine Murphy coming into my studio and saying... You have the ultimate education. Like, she was really, oh, like, really? impressed so by that. Yeah, she was one of the few teachers that really embraced me, you know. And um, and I feel like she kind of, like, put it to my attention. Like, look, you're getting, like, the best of both worlds here, you know. Yeah, she's great. She, you know, I, I guess you, you graduated in 97, right? Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, I came in right after you left. Yeah. I was in 98, 98. So we had the same teachers i'm sure Catherine was great she had the best line in one of my final crits she didn't talk that much during my crits but during like the last i think it was the last one where she was like like i don't really i don't really understand what he's doing at all here but i kind of like it <laughs> that's almost exact bryce martin came to as a visiting artist when i was at yale and he pretty much said that exact same line to me when he came into my studio he's like i don't really understand it he's like but i love it <laughs> Like, <laughs> see, you can't. You're Bryce Martin. He came whenever I was there too, so he he came back again briefly after, and uh, he yelled at me because his slides were upside down. But I didn't put the slides into his carousel, so he's kind of not nice about that to me. But um, he, how do you not? How are you not able to talk about a different kind of work? Yeah. I mean, I guess I understand it more as a visiting artist than like a professor. But you should be able to. You know what I mean? It's like it's such an old person thing to do. It's like I can't. I had a lot of that though. Like I had a lot of me too people that came into my studio and weren't quite sure like what I was doing. But I I do feel like it was like a moment. What'd you say? That's kind of a good sign. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it was, and also I feel like I connected a lot to the the visiting artists that came through Yale. So I think that was interesting to me because sometimes I felt like I butted heads with. The, the actual professors that were there but then I felt like the visiting artists came like Larry Pittman came and Harry, Mary Heilman was there and she when Mary Heilman came she gave me her card and was like when you get out of here like call me like we can like wow. hang out and like go see shows together which we did for actually several years like after cool. um, Yale you know and I remember Larry Pittman also had like a good I remember I was wearing like a tracksuit like adidas like um it was like navy with like white stripes on it and he was like never change who you are like you know like keep you know like keep your fashion like he you know like don't let this place like change you you know yeah that's cool i had the same it sounds like we had the same experience because i had with the faculty like not really anyone was into it i mean mel kind of supported me Mel, I felt like didn't, I always thought, I remember when I first got there, I thought that Mel was going to be like my advocate because my, 
because the way that I did talk about work was through ideas, you know? And so I thought that he would get that because I felt like he was like a conceptual thinker, you know, in the way that he made his artwork. But then I, I sort of felt like he never really connected with me, like somehow... I felt like he had sort of become more traditional in his ideas of painting and like sort of wanted to talk about painting like in in a different way you know like wasn't so interested in that at the time even though later he like I was friends with his his nephew like years later who's a filmmaker and and his nephew was like, oh, Mel really loved you. And who knows if that was really true or not, you know, like, but he sort of had a different story. And I was like, I don't know. So, I mean, my biggest advocate was um, Sam Messer. I feel like Sam Messer oh, was Sam, a pretty I great. I, I mean, Sam was around, but I never really had him. Yeah, he was great. Uh, I had, the visiting artist thing, I also had the same sort of... Um, I had the same experience, like really cool visiting artists. Like Richard Phillips came and he was just like, yeah, man, keep doing it. <laughs> it was great. Yeah. You know, he was just into it. And then I had Carol Dunham and it was really funny. That would have been and great. I would have loved to have seen Carol Dunham. The only one that didn't go so well, I don't know if I said, wow, what the hell, was uh, Laura Owens. She came in and she was just like, yeah, I don't, I don't. I remember she was just like not into it. And then she was just like, it just looks like you're gonna ha- you're having a show. <laughs> <laughs> I was so confused for weeks. Laura, know, like, Laura was at CalArts when I was at CalArts. Like Laura and Monique Prieto, she was a graduate student when I was an undergraduate there. But at CalArts, um, the classes are all mixed together. So whatever class you're taking, you, it doesn't matter if you're an undergrad or a graduate student. Yeah. And so. Um, so I had a lot of classes with her, actually. Yeah, she didn't... It, it was it was actually really good in hindsight, you know, that for me to ask that question to myself. But, you know, I was like, wait, isn't that... I mean, is there something wrong with that? I couldn't understand. I was like, wait. And I get it. I think she she wanted me to try to, like, do different things. And like experiment, yeah. It just looks like I'm making a solid body of work, but... To be fair to me, she was coming right at the end of my last semester as a student getting ready for my thesis show. And I had, you know, made, I had crapped the bed for basically like a year, you know, and like it kind of like come into an idea and was working on it. But yeah, she was just like, uh, that was one of, sometimes you have those studio visits where when they leave, you're just like, oh, what, wait, what? She's kind of like that too. Like, I feel like that's sort of her style, you know, like she's a bit like, argumentative and like a bit you know like sort of changing it up yeah yeah always yeah asking those questions which which i respect and i think that's great but i don't think every artist needs to do that i don't think that's everyone's calling is to just reinvent the wheel every day in their studio right you know some people you know like on kawara was amazing he just made the same painting i love on kawara he's one of my favorites (laughs) one of my favorites too I, i love it i love that room in dia just, that room at Dia has my birth date in it, which oh, is so like lucky. the it's most amazing. Like for my birthday every year, I always post like a picture of me standing next to it. So, like, <laughs> it's pretty great. <laughs> yeah. I know the first time I went in, I was like, please. <laughs> <laughs> was it? Was it actual day? Of the your actual day just, that I was born. Yes. And year. Yes. 
Oh my gosh. That's it makes me want to like go there and like steal it. <laughs> you know, like, right? I'm like, this was yeah, meant for me. But I, you can make a copy. I did. I did. It. I actually, when, when, I think it was when my sister and I turned 30 years old, like my birthday gift to her was an Ankara, which is pretty hilarious because people actually think it's real, like when they go oh, to right. her house, you know, That's like cool. they're like, oh my God, do you have a real Ankara? And she's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's a marina. <laughs> yeah. My sister made it. Last year for Christmas, I made her a fake Picasso, which I'm pretty proud of, too. That looked oh, pretty good. Cool. Well, do you do a lot of knockoffs? I mean, not really, but, like, my sister has a really beautiful house, and, like, she loves that idea, you know? And so she's always like, make me a painting, you know? And so I'll do it for her. And I have to say that when you do do it, it's such a great learning. I never had to do anything like that in school, you know, like, but it oh, is. You didn't do it at Yale? We had to do it in color. We had to reproduce through Colorade. No. A, like a, a masterwork or whatever. No, I didn't do that. I didn't do anything like that. And so, like, now when I do it, it, it I always feel like I learned something. Oh, they're really great. I like, I like to have students in painting class, like, do a copy. You learn so much about, you know, what they were thinking and kind of unconsciously figuring things out. It's, it's great. Yeah. And really getting in there, like without like self-consciousness and, you know, like I feel like sometimes when you're like in front of a painting at a museum or something, like you're still sort of aware, like, Oh, I better keep moving or, you know, someone's standing next to me or, you know, like sometimes like there's many reasons why you could sort of be out of the moment, you know, but when you're like actually like remaking a painting, like you just lose yourself in it, you know, and then all of a sudden like you're like noticing like the tiniest brushstroke detail or whatever's happening or the logic, like you're really figuring out like the logic in it, you know, so that's super fun. No, I think it's a great learning experience. I mean, I still, to this day, I if I have a song that I really love and I'm going to learn it on guitar, I think it's such a fun thing to have to sit there and figure it out. You know, before doing the YouTube tutorial. <laughs> like, like actually just trying to find the notes yourself. Right. It's like a good learning experience, I think. Yeah, totally. The same goes with making things. You know, you diversify in a way. You have to. Like, it's like, oh, you can do it that way, you know? Right. I mean, I'd, if if someone said you have to make a copy, because like I don't really do it, but I think I would do one of Van Gogh's self-portraits because the way he laid color down next to another color was just like, when I look at it, I'm like, how? Right. How did he think of that? Well, and also like my Picasso is not a real, like it's not a copy, you know, it's like my version of a Picasso, oh, you, oh, you know? Okay. So it's not like... It's a cover song. It's not a copy. Yeah, I would say that it's a cover it's song. Like, I'm definitely, like, riffing off of the original, you know, and there's right. things that I'm doing that are things that I do in my own painting, you know. Like, I wasn't trying to be, like, a painter like him, you know, but I but I used the structure, you know. Yeah. Now, and it, and you... when you gl- glance at it, it looks just like the original, but when you actually look at it, it's not, you know. Right, right. Do you have... A song that you love the cover version more than the original? Mm-mm. That kind of puts you on the spot. <laughs> I'm trying to... There's some great cover songs. I'm sure there are great. I mean, I don't know. That's a good question. I would have to think about that. You know, I love Michael Jackson. 
Like it, I love Michael Jackson's music. But um, Smooth Criminal by Alien Ant Farm, like that like hardcore version of it, which I don't like them at all. I mean, I don't listen to them, but I love that cover version. I have to so listen to that. It's pretty great. Yeah, there's a few covers that just... Like, there. I did a video for this band. I don't know if you know them. They're called Poolside. Mm-mm. They did a cover of Harvest Moon by uh, Neil Young, and it's so good. And it's not better. Nothing's better than the original, but it's it's really a good cover song well speaking about music too like i think and when i was talking about sort of like structure like using structure like i feel like i am like thinking about sound and stuff a lot like in my new paintings but i'm not necessarily thinking about songs or you know like i'm thinking more about kind of the inherent structure of music you know like a beat or like a rhythm or a scale or loud versus soft or like the length of noise or like a blast of a trumpet or you know so I think like I am like super interested in in the idea of sound and how you would and how you visualize that you know and there was a really great show that was at MoCA I think in 2005 it was called Visual Music and it's like was just a stunning show that incorporated this idea of like visualizing sound, you know, and I think that that made like a real impression on me, you know. So I thought about that a lot in the the show that I had uh, this past March at Shrine. I sort of had this big grid of paintings that were all kind of optically vibrating, like just the, the, the layers of paint and sort of repeating images that were sort of close together. So your eyes sort of had trouble like focusing you know and I thought about like this kind of vibration and resonance of 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 music and and then I also liked the idea of um of of the wall of sound like Phil Spector's um sort of developed like a way to record music in the 1960s I'm sure you know about this where he kind of layered um instruments together like and and amplified sound and and all that kind of stuff like this kind of inherent structure of music is like super interesting to me so I had this idea of like when I did this big grid of paintings of sort of trying to figure out how to do that kind of in my own way of like creating a wall of sound but like through the color and the and the optics you know and and also through the kind of visual experience of like almost making something so loud you know like because it was 21 paintings that were in a grid that was so you know you were kind of struck when you walked in like you were like oh my god like wow you know so it had this effect of feeling loud you know and so I thought a a lot about that in terms of sound and then the wall that was kind of across from it I, I wanted to to sort of make very quiet you know like sort of have this kind of asymmetry in the room you know and also feel like kind of a different moment you know so there were only four like really small paintings like 12 by 12 inch paintings that were on the wall so there was quite a big discrepancy between um the two walls you know so i am like i am actually thinking about sound quite a bit but not exactly like in you know like in a in a song way you know right yeah you've you've had like really interesting ways that you show the work and present the work, like working in space. I'll never forget that show. I think it was called I-20 Gallery. Yes, right? yeah. 
but that installation was great. Oh, I'm so happy that you remember that. I feel like, I I feel sad. That That was the first, I think it was a year, because I graduated from Yale, and then I went back to Los Angeles that summer, and I did like a big um, uh, mural painting, like in an architect's office, like a big installation painting in his office, and Paul Juddelson, who who is the owner of I-20 Gallery, came to L.A., and he, um, like a friend of mine, had recommended that um, he come and see my painting, and he was like, yeah, tell her to call me, and um, and I'll go and see the work. And so I, like, picked him up, and I had, like, a really cool old car, like an old vintage Mercedes, and I, like, picked him up in my Mercedes. He, he was staying at the Chateau Marmont, and I drove him to Santa Monica to see this painting. And then like a week later, he offered me a show at I-20. So I went back to New York to make the work there. So it was about a year after I graduated from Yale, I had that show at I-20, which was, uh, I don't remember how many canvases it was now, maybe like 20 canvases that wrapped around the entire room. So it was kind of like a band of paintings like a strip like around yeah like butted up yeah they were butted up against each other and it was meant to be like a sound loop you know like it was meant to sort of have this idea of like like uh sort of quieter like if you started at the painting that i thought was like the beginning it was sort of very quiet sort of architectural shapes and then they kind of like built up more and more and then by the end of it, there was kind of this like mass explosion, like chaos, and then you were back to the the loop of like sort of the quiet paintings once again, you know. Yeah. And so it was meant to sort of have that feeling, you know. Yeah, to have that like, I guess anytime something sort of panoramic, you know, it has like a movement to it. But the funny thing is, um, it's funny we we read in the west left to right, in the east people read right to right. left. You spent a little time, that's my segue too. You spent a little time in Japan, didn't you? I love Japan. I love Japan very much, yes. I think I've been to Japan about eight times. Um, the longest I spent there I did was in 2007. I did an artist in residence program there, and I think I stayed for about five months um, and made paintings there. And then I went back actually to that residency in 2013 and did another artist in residence there for three Just months as long. it wasn't as long like the first time I went I was having a show in the gallery space in Shibuya and um and it was a quite a large gallery and so it was a pretty intensive work time making the paintings and then the second time I went was more like a research project like researching uh, Japanese textiles so that was different like I wasn't actually painting as much there as 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 I was kind of researching. Where did you, where did you do your research? I mean, I sort of arrived and, and I had been, I actually had gone to FIT and had done a lot of textile design classes and sort of had gotten interested in textile design and like patterns, um, which were kind of, the pattern making was kind of starting to, to come into my paintings, which even now, I mean, it, it's not, so much pattern now, but the kind of repeating motif idea and that layering and transparency definitely comes from me looking at a lot of pattern design. And so I arrived in Japan 
sort of saying that I was coming to do research, but I didn't have anything specific. Like I had to figure it out basically myself, you know? And so, and I ended up actually meeting this really great guy who was actually Canadian, but had lived in Japan for 25 plus years and was living kind of in the mountains outside of Tokyo, like an hour outside of Tokyo. And he was doing everything himself out there. He was like growing indigo. He was, had, um, silkworms and um was making his own silk and you know like and and dyeing fabric and had a farm out there and it built his home and so I ended up sort of connecting with him and I did a lot of trips out there to visit him and learned about indigo dyeing and the process like the the katazome process of like stenciling um onto fabric and you know sort of kind of got into that which was sort of like I mean indigo dyeing now I feel like in the U.S. got really trendy after that you know but this was kind of like right this was in 2013 so it was like a little right before like I didn't even really know that much about indigo you know and so it felt like this exciting new thing you know and then I feel like within a year or two after that it got exploded into like a trend yeah, it kind of got everywhere. <laughs> yeah. I was like, remember, uh, Japanese denim had like a moment where it was just, you know, it became a huge thing. Like it, before that, it was like people who knew, it's like, oh, you can get the really nice denim. And then all of a sudden it was like, yeah. blew up. I also got, one thing that I really loved on that trip was I got into Boro, um, which is like these kind of blankets uh, and also sometimes clothes that were made out of using like scraps of material. And it was like, kind of like any, like very uh, kind of working class idea of like using your scraps and like making your family's blanket, you know, but like they're, I mean, they're, maybe they're a little bit like G's bend quilts or something, you know, like sort of, uh, using scraps to like make these kind of beautiful, like almost modernist looking, um, blankets and, and, and stuff for the home, you know, and, and those are quite beautiful because they also had like just a, such a beautiful story, you know, of like, um, a family and like generations and like passing a craft onto, you know, the next generation. And they, they were storytellers basically through, through the objects. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I didn't even know about that. How do you spell it? Boro, it's B-O-R-O. Got it. That's pretty cool. I wonder if that's short for... Bar- yeah, everything's shortened. <laughs> oh, um, that's really cool. Yeah, I, I feel like that must have been such a good visual influence just being there. Well, yeah, I mean, I feel a very strong connection to Japan. I always kind of joke that I was Japanese in another life, you know, because like, I feel like there's so much that I connect to, even just personality-wise in some ways, you know, and then I also feel like aesthetically I have, like, a strong link to that kind of sub- simplicity and, like, minimalism, you know, that you see there. And it's interesting because it's... My sister also has the same aesthetic, you know, like, I feel like we sort of grew up with it, like, it, with her jewelry, the way she makes her jewelry has this kind of very flat and graphic and modernist 
look to it, you know, so, and I mean, I definitely feel like it comes from growing up in LA and probably talking about like the light and kind of the flatness and graphicness that kind of happens in that stark light, you know, but there's definitely a connection there to the Japanese aesthetic, which I think is kind of interesting. So yeah, that makes sense with the, I never thought about that with the LA thing, that is sort of flatness of the landscape and the light and crisp. There's a crispness to it. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably not the, the Greek and Chilean visual influence. Which is <laughs> I don't think so. Well, like I said, I was always rebelling against that. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's true. Um, but yeah, that's... Uh, have you... And you've shown over there outside of that, um, the residency program? I, I have. I mean, I've never... I've actually have not... I've never, like, been, like, affiliated with a, like, had a gallery in Japan for whatever reason, but I've been in a lot of exhibitions because, um, maybe you're in this collection, too, the, the Taguchi Art Collection. Are you part of that? Not that I know of. Oh, really? I would, I would (laughs) have, I feel like your work sort of has, like, a feeling, um, it's like a corporation, a large corporation who, um, the president of that company was uh, a art collector and was super interested in American painting. So he like built like a, a pretty vast collection of, of painting. And he is kind of great because he, um, he loans the work out a lot. Like he's an interesting collector because it's not like it just sits in storage. Like it gets like they create, they curate shows and then they get, they tour museums and galleries like in Japan. So like I've had work on display, like in group shows at museums and places like through the, the Taguchi art collection. Um, but haven't actually worked with the gallery separately. I have the convert. I mean, I've shown there for a long time, but I don't believe I'm in that collection. I'm surprised. But I have had the opportunity to show in the public there, which is really fun and cool, you know, to do different things over there. But I feel like it's just such a great audience. Like, people really get into stuff, you know. Yeah. I mean, I I love Japan simply because, like, it's like a culture that really, like, cares about the details you know and so like and it's just care about each other yeah and like care about like you know like the food like everything is like the best you know like whether you're talking about food or you're talking about architecture or you're talking about you know whatever like some simple package design or you know any or even you know craft like you know like the borrow blankets or something you know like anything like everything is just so like well cared for and quality is important and the simplicity of design and stuff like there's just so much to love like there's nothing about japan that i don't like you know i know well the smoking can be <laughs> but outside yeah. of that <laughs> Unless you're a smoker, I, I am not a smoker. But yeah, no, it's it's really great. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm converted. I love the place. It's it, you know, in the. Have, well, have you read? Um, have you read *In Praise of Sa- Shadows* before? Yeah. If you're gonna read, if you I will read write that something, down. I think <laughs> I'm gonna read. It's all about <laughs> the appreciation of 
what's unsaid or the the negative space or the things that are overlooked you know whether it's art or utilitarian day-to-day objects and stuff it's kind of the you know exactly what you were talking about the attention to detail you know which I, I love it occasionally when I'm getting something wrapped in a store and it's taking 20 minutes my New Yorker comes out where I'm like okay well I, I mean nowadays it's a bit tough because it also makes you feel about waste, you know, like, like yeah. I'm conflicted yeah. about the waste of like, oh, this is beautiful packaging, but it's also like unnecessary. It's like five you know? trees. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I feel like there's such like, there's no garbage anywhere. Like it's invisible. There's no garbage cans or garbage. Everyone just takes it home. It's so clean and, you know, it's just, it's nice. Yeah. So, well, you had this show at Shrine Gallery. Does it, are you, I have no idea if you're a fast worker or a slow worker. It could be either or. I wouldn't say that I was a fast worker. Um, I mean, I'm pretty, like, I've gotten pretty uh, more and more, like, uptight about the surface, you know? And so, like, I tend, sometimes I can make a painting quickly but then I'll do it again or even I'll do it like a second time like just to get get it perfect you know and so sometimes things can take me like a really long time to make I mean I'm pretty meticulous and there are certain and I'm also very patient so I can work on something for a long time and like make a painting like during COVID like 2020 I went back to LA and I was at my sister's house and I made one painting it took me about four months to make um and it was pretty labor I mean it was a large I cleared out the living room my sister was very generous and let me take all the furniture out of the living room and I made like a six by ten foot painting in the living room and it was sort of like one image kind of a very abstracted like two faces that I repeated across the canvas like 12 times you know so I basically made the same image 12 times over and over again across to get from left to right to get to the other side of the canvas so it was only about like six inches or seven inches or something that was showing from the under layer that I had painted and then I shifted the image over and repainted it so that was very labor intensive and a lot of it you ended up not even seeing right because it was like covered you know by the next layer but I like kind of building up that texture like on the canvas and you can kind of see this like underpainting that's happening that adds like an extra element. Cause I think in, in pictures, my work, which is probably true of you too, like gets super graphic, you know? Yeah. And then when you actually see it in person, there's a lot more of kind of texture and like painterly element to it. So people are often like pretty shocked, you know, like, oh my God, like I had no idea, you know? So, um, but with the Shrine Show, I started working on those paintings in 2019. So it did take quite a while, but then, like I said, I sort of got interrupted because of COVID and went to LA in 2020 and I stayed in LA for a year. So, which I would never have imagined at the time, you know, that I was going to be there for that long. So I picked it up again, um, in like 2021. So I would say it took me about two years to make those paintings. And it was about 23. 
I made other smaller works and studies and stuff too, but it was like 23 larger, like three by three foot paintings that ended up in the show. But then, like I said, I would also like throw away paintings. So I probably in that span of time, probably threw away like 15 paintings that I didn't use. Wow. Wow. That's, it's funny because like um, the exact opposite is happening to me where the older I get, the, the, as the years go by, I get less particular like I just let things fly that I never would you know what I mean I just I, I start to be looser for some yeah. reason that's kind of nice I, I sort of wish I was doing that <laughs> when I'm like oh no like this is getting really uptight <laughs> well I think you're probably it sounds like like hearing from your past that's your wheelhouse of like being it's it's kind of resonates with the way you like to make things you know what I mean I think that you know, in the tradition of like Warhol or people like that, I, I think there's a certain flatness to my work or directness, but more, it's it's less about finish or surface. It's almost more about Bugs Bunny, you know, or like it's that kind of flatness where it's just like more simplified. And But um, I'm not, you know, I remember I went through a little bit of phase in graduate school where I was figuring out, oh, I can make these like seamless to where you don't even see a brushstroke. And then I figured out, like, oh, I can do that. But then I just didn't... Not, it's not that I don't like that. It's, like, A, I didn't want to do it necessarily. And B, it's not me to to have everything just right. Like, I'm kind of messy, even though I'm kind of ordered about certain things. Right. So it's, well, yeah, yeah, I definitely think that my personality is, like, I take great joy and like controlling things you know like I like it and I'm like good at it you know and so like that kind of precision you know I do like I think what's happened with this newer work is that the layers are incredibly thin transparent layers like I'm diluting the paint incredibly with like just polymer medium you know like just basically adding acrylic without pigment into it you know to keep it as thin as possible so then what happened is that there's just no room for error you know like even if you get like a flat like I use to apply paint I use a lot of like paint rollers you know to get kind of that flat textured feeling so even if there's like a piece of lint that gets like on the surface, you know, which is often hard to see because when it's wet, you can't really see it. And then all of a sudden it dries and you see this tiny fleck or whatever, you know, it ruins that kind of beautiful, like ghostly transparency, you know? And so like, it just feels like there's just not a lot of room to get that kind of ethereal, delicate look. There's not like a lot of room for error, you know? So I think that that's why it's kind of, tightened up you know is that I realized like oh if you get it right it really like sings you know like but yeah. if you see that that nick or you see that tiny hair or you see whatever you know then it, then it it's it stops working for me you know right yeah no it's it's interesting like I have the the total op- it's like when I just had to show up in the city with miles I had to tell do a walkthrough and be like okay do you see this drip or this mark or that bump like I want that there I'm not you know I could have fixed it or not had it but like I want a little bit of the mess ups I mean I also do that too like I mean I like I am uptight about certain things and then I'm also not about other things like because I do think like 
I don't want to make artwork that looks like a machine was ma- made it or, you know, or you could like seriously like digitally print it out, you know, and I, right. like I'm not yeah. interested in doing that, you know. So I do think like the hand is really important, you know. So there are certain things where there might be like a blip or like, you know, maybe like a, a splatter of paint that gets somewhere or something that I'll like leave, you know. So yeah. like in my mind, there's like, kind of two groups you know like the acceptable like kind of fun mistakes you know and then the also like unacceptable you know so yeah i i feel like no matter how tight the painting is if the sides are canvas or linen or whatever raw like they're not painted around the sides then you're letting people know do you know what i mean i don't do you paint the sides i I used to with my when my work was more like opaque and kind of, you know, like the earlier work, I always painted, I was always interested in the paintings and sort of feeling like objects, you know? And so like once, yeah. yeah. So like I, I, at the end, I would always wrap the painted image around like by painting the side. So it matched the front, but I can't do that now because of these transparent layers. Like I would, um, potentially could mess up like the side or you know like I I couldn't like evenly match it you know which I kind of like actually like that's kind of freeing to not have to do that at the end you know and then also to to see a little bit of that like the way the paint meets the edge or like that drip or whatever like I kind of like that yeah because once I mean it's been fairly recent I think where it's become ubiquitous but once like staples started printing out things on canvas and wrapping them you know what i mean now every time i see something painted around the sides it makes me feel like oh it was printed and they just did it you know so i like to see i remember one of the first shows i think it was the same day i saw carol dunham and larry Pittman. i saw inca essenheis work this is a long time ago it was one of her first i'm sure it was one of her early shows it was a group show and that the paint was so thick at the bottom it looks super flat like the enamel, you know, it looked like it was a print or something. But on the bottom, there was just drippy, like, clumps of where the paint was just built up. And I, and it, I was like, wow, you can do that. You know, it was, it was a pretty cool juxtaposition between, you know, almost like no hand, seamless, and then, like, thick, like, monstrous paint globules, like, at the bottom. It was pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, again, that's what I love about paint, right? Like seeing all that kind of variation and sort of the lusciousness of it and like the gloppiness and, you know, like there's something really kind of wonderful about paint, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Even like whether it's Clifford Still and giant like thick areas or like Barnett Newman's tape where he peels it off, but it's kind of messy, but you still have a little bit of chaos and control. Like that's the whimsy of it all, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see where I go with it. Like, if I do continue to be so tight about this work or or if I loosen up a little bit. I'm not, I don't know. It's we'll funny, see. though, because as someone, I think we have some similarities in the way that we're painting. Yeah. So I feel like a lot of the places you loosen up with the newer work is that transparency creates so much of a vibration to where you're not delineating things as directly. There's a lot of like nuance to that. You know what I mean? Well, I always feel like I'm full of contradictions in the way that I make artwork. Like I'm using a process, like I'm taping and I'm using this kind of hard edged, which I, 
kind of hate that term, but like I'm sort of making like paintings in this hard edge style, but then I'm trying to make like soft, like fuzzy images, you know? Mm -hmm. And so like, I feel like I'm, there's a lot of like conflict in what I'm doing, which I think is good because it provides, it's like problem solving, like, oh, how would I do that? You know, like, but I'm also using like highly glossy paint, but then I'm trying to make them sort of look matte and, you know, like, I like sort of, I'm always feels like I'm sort of pulling and pushing like back and forth from like extremes, you know? Yeah. But I think conceptually that resonates with a lot of what we're dealing with. Like if you think about someone who uses like the computer to make music, but it's very like ethereal and lush and kind of emotional or something, which people tend to think is counter, you right. know, the, the sort of like sterility of technology. So in a way, it's like combining ways that, you know, talk about the bigger way that we make things or we interact with things right the complexity of that well yeah and that's where i feel like you find your unique voice you know it's like yeah. the way that you problem solve something or put something connect the dots like in a way that someone else might not you know right well i mean and from where your background and growing up and your experience i mean how could you not be <laughs> you've had a pretty unique go at it although there's another one of you which is funny <laughs> Do Which you think is so right strange. Now she feels like she's being podcasted in a way. That's the biggest question. If you're an identical twin, the biggest question yeah. you get is like if you can telepathically communicate. And I always like answer. If I kick you in the shin, and she's going to go like, ow. Yeah, right. No, that's not going to happen. We've actually sat like in the same room together and been like, okay, what am I thinking right now? And we're always wrong. But I right. do think that we have like. Like, I always say, like, if something terrible happened to her or something, like, if something really, truly, like, significant happened, I feel like I would know, you know, or have some right. kind of feeling about it, you know. But I think that's with humans. Right. Too, to an extent. Did you ever see Waking Life? No. Okay. Can I suggest a movie? <laughs> yes. Waking Life. It's rotoscoped. It's, it's, it's an amazing. Visually, I think you'll like it. But there's this part where Ethan Hawke is talking about they... Um, released I, i'm gonna butcher this but they released a crossword somewhere else in the world the day before like a day early and then when it came out on its normal time elsewhere like people did much better at it than they normally do and it's almost like it's like idea that the answers are in the collective consciousness or something yeah i i mean i totally I completely believe in that. And even what I was saying about like the indigo dying that was so intriguing to me in Japan and then sort of like cropped up like almost immediately after I like had seen it, you know, like I feel like there is this kind of zeitgeist where these like ideas sort of like come up together, you know, like this kind of universal thing happens where all of a sudden people, you know, there's just kind of this, I mean, even with the, the paintings that I made for Shrine, like, sort of optically making the that work look like like I do think those paintings in the end are a lot about like connection you know and like connecting to other people and sort of um and how we connect but a lot of times it's like invisible like it's something that we can't even see or you know like it's not about the talking like you know it's about all the other stuff that's happening like in between you know so that's pretty interesting to me like even just like how we're operating in the universe or like our connections to 
everything else that's around us. Like, you know, nothing's as concrete as we think it is, you know, so... Definitely yeah, but there's a desire for connectivity, which is, yes. I think, why you get that question. Yes. Because there's that, the old wives' tale, you know, like that idea that, like, that exists, and people are like, oh, it'd be so cool if, like, I could affect someone else, or, like, that we're feeling the same thing, you know, it's a desire to feel connected that we yes. have as a species. Yeah, and I mean, being a twin, too, is so interesting, because, like you're not alone in the world, you know? And like you, like in some ways, maybe that connectedness actually is real, you know? Like, because like, I have never like felt, you know, I'm not a singleton. Like I, you know, like I didn't grow up alone. Like I've always been connected to someone else that's like understood me or, you know? So. Yeah. I have the same thing. It's just a mirror. (laughs) (laughs) This does exactly what I do. It's really weird. <laughs> it's like a, a real life mirror image, you know, of like Yeah, and that's the thing too, it's like my dad was a fraternal twin, you know, and they feel they're not identical, but they still have this resonance. Oh, they do. Because sometimes I I've asked fraternal twins before if they feel that connection and sometimes it, i feel like it's hit or miss like sometimes fraternal twins can be like no nah, we're not that close or you know like don't have that experience as much yeah it's interesting genetics and that whole thing <laughs> well and and from the outside you're probably like yeah i'm over it <laughs> well, what are you working on now are, are you have you started new stuff do you t- are you taking a break well i I did the Shrine show, which closed in April, and then I have a show that's actually up right now. I did a, an artist in residency program at Lighthouse Works, which was on Fisher's Island in New York, and we had been talking about doing a show for a while, and then they kind of popped up like while the Shrine show was up, and they were like, can you do the show? And, like, have it open on Memorial Day, which was like, I think that was like eight weeks, eight or nine weeks like before... Memorial Day, you know, and then I was like, yikes, like, that's really soon. But then in a way, that was kind of nice, because I was like, I'm just going to keep the momentum going and like, you know, make these paintings. So I made some 12 small paintings, which they also showed in like a grid, but like kind of it was sort of a mini version of the show that I had at Shrine. Um, But this it the palette, the color palette shifted a bit like the I pumped up the color, and when I was on Fisher's Island, I really loved uh, the evenings, like when the sun was setting and the colors, like on the water, and you know, were just really stunning and beautiful. And so, uh, when I was there, I had sort of thought, like, how do I, how could I make a sunset, like access a sunset painting, but like kind of make it my own, you know? Like it's such a, you know, like cliche of a subject, you know? And so. Anyway, when they when they were like, do you want to do this show? I was like, I'm going to try to make like some sunset paintings, which felt like an extension of kind of the rhythm and, uh, you know, frequency that I was like thinking about in the in the shrine show. But like this time it felt like it was more about like the cycle of a day and thinking about 24 hours and like thinking about um, time and, you know, and 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 the sun like you know like such a a simple concept you know like but thinking about like all the ways 
you could sort of interpret it that, you know. So that show is up right now, and it's up through July 16th. Um, nice. And so, so I've had a little bit of a break. Like, um, that show uh, went up at the end of May, so it's been, I've had, like, a couple, two or three weeks of having a break. Um, but then now I'm sort of, I'm ordered some stretchers and I'm getting ready to like start making some newer work and like thinking about what's going to be next. But nice. Shrine is, is um, opening an LA gallery space in the fall. So I'm assuming that I'll most likely have a show in the LA space in the, in the future. So that probably the is hometown. like the next. Yeah. So that's the perfect gallery for me because they're LA and New York based now. And that's pretty much the way I am as well. So I go back to LA a lot. So kind of back and forth. Maybe you could tell them to open up a Tokyo brand. <laughs> I would love set. that. I would right. absolutely love that. So. A trifecta. <laughs> yeah. Well, and what about online? Where's the best place for people to see what you're doing? I mean, I mostly, these days I'm mostly uh, like sharing my work and posting on Instagram. Well, it was great to talk to you. Yes, it was a pleasure talking to you as well. And um, everyone should check out your stuff. You do have a website, maybe not all. I do have a website, yes, on my Instagram. I'm posting a lot on Instagram and... You can see my work on Shrine's gallery site and also Lighthouse Works. Perfect. Thanks for taking the time to talk. It was great. Yeah, thanks so much. Sound and Vision is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Brian Alfred. You can check out more on the podcast by going to the website, soundandvisionpodcast.com, images at Sound of Vision Podcast on Instagram, images of my work at Alfred Studio on Instagram. Many thanks to Michael Lovett, Weird Inside, and for Marina for taking the time to talk. Also, a big thanks to the sponsors, Fulcrum Coffee, which I'm drinking right now, and check out their stuff at fulcrumcoffee.com. They have a great subscription plan where you can just get that stuff delivered to your door. Also, big thanks to Golden Artist Colors for their sponsorship. They have the best paints, in my opinion. Mediums, all that stuff. You can get them at your local art store, goldenpaints.com. And if you love the podcast, please order the book, Why I Make Art. It's out. You can get it at Altillier Editions on their website. And there's a link on the Sound Vision Podcast website. 25 bucks and a lot of art. Thanks for listening. Got some more good episodes coming up, so stay tuned.